Hello again, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jason. And I'm Steve. And welcome to this week's episode of Dual Rambling. This week, we're going to take a look at driverless cars. We're going to take a look at the right to repair law, both with phones and with cars. So I guess to begin, Steve, let's take a look. Uh, There was an article we were looking at about a driverless race car. Uh, (laughs) So from what I understand, uh, yeah, it just decided to take a sharp right right into the wall. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Got a little uh, a little exciting there for a few moments, I suppose. Um, I picture this as, uh, let me, let me reverse back here a second. So when I had gotten my first real job, um, I started buying things that I always wanted as a kid, but we could never afford. And so the first two things I remember buying with like my real people money kind of deal, um, is I went out and I bought a gas powered RC car that did like 50 plus and I bought an electric RC car. That at least at the time, that one did probably 20 or 30, which was fast back then. It isn't by today's standards. But for me, you know, having a real race car that could go more than 10 feet away from you and, you know, go those kind of speeds was pretty crazy. I went over to this really large parking lot that was by our house with the gas RC car. And I remember running that thing a couple of times. And back in the day, they didn't have anything in place that would essentially stop them. Like if you got out of range or if if there was some sort of a glitch, wherever it was, (laughs) it just kind of kept doing its thing. And I remember that thing just taking off across the parking lot at least once or twice on me at like 50 plus miles an hour and just, you know, scaring the living daylights out of me because they're not cheap by any means. And they weigh, you know, the chassis are aluminum and everything. So, I mean, if that ran into somebody or something, you could easily do a lot of damage. It doesn't help you hook daggers to the front of it, you know, just to kind of. <laughs> yeah, right. And we always got it back. Like it always would either, you know come back in range or whatever, or it would, you know, reconnect or whatever the case may be. So we never like lost it, lost it, but there was a couple of like pucker moments kind of deal. And I would imagine, you know, if you're the company that owns this race car, you would have to be in that same kind of boat The the people granted, there was nobody in this, you know, so that's a plus because, you know, obviously if there's a driver in there, they could have really gotten hurt, but you have to be, you know, the company that's invested millions or potentially billions of dollars into this car and to watch it take off and just, you know, turn sharp and go slam into one of those cement, you know, embankment kind of deals, you know, and then me, and there's a video in the, uh, in the article here and you can see the front corner, like crunch and break, you know, and I don't know a ton about F1, but I know that the parts for them are not cheap, you know, mostly because they're all custom made. So I would be, you know, pretty worried about that. Now, they did say that apparently it was, I guess, human error to some degree. So the driver... I mean, I guess somewhere would have to be, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. Either you programmed it wrong or you dropped the setting or something. Right. That's true. But this was really bad human error, I guess. (laughs) But at the same time, it also seems like a really stupid thing that the car should have checked for kind of deal. So... yeah. They said that there's like a, a initiation lap kind of deal and that the guy gets in, you know, pulls it to the start line, gets it ready to go kind of deal, gets out and then the car takes over. Well, from the, what it sounds like, the guy had the wheel cranked really hard over to the right and then got out of the car and just never straightened it or something. So 
you know, part of me thinks that when the car goes to initiate to take off or whatever, that it would do some sort of a test to kind of verify that the wheels are straight or that it's, you know, aligned properly. You know, a car that's designed to go a couple hundred miles an hour, that seems at best case scenario, that seems like something that should just be there. But for whatever reason, it clearly did not. It She took off and right into the wall she went. I think to some extent, you'd almost expect some sort of uh, like a post test, but instead of power on, in this case, a the driver is leaving type test. At, or at least have some sort of a uh, sensor to show like, hey, the, the, the steering wheels cranked to the side. Right. It, yeah. It's showing the wheels are 40 degrees off to the side or something, you know, whatever. Now, the, I guess the big question I have that I didn't see in that is it how autonomous is it? Is it more of a uh, RC type setup? In which case, your sensors as the guy driving via remote control should have seen that that was cranked to the side, or is it like you know Tesla's auto driving type cars? To the best of my knowledge, um, it is a fully autonomous car. So like it's reading the track, it's reading, you know, whatever markers and stuff are on the ground or on the walls. So it is not, it isn't somebody with a remote control driving 200 miles an hour kind of deal. The car is actually making those calls and adjustments. I'm sure there's some sort of a giant kill switch button, which uh, again, ironically, somebody, somebody wasn't ready for, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like this is completely, you know, kind of doing its own thing. But and I think that's kind of what makes it a little bit scary to some degree, because while this one was just taken off from the start line and kind of, you know, did a big curve like that, you know, you hear about all of the incidences like with Tesla's and some of the other self-driving cars on the highway where, you know, be driving along and it it wants to switch lanes or it thinks there's something else going on because it sees a reflection or, you know, whatever the case may be and creates that oopsie moment. But that's at, you know, what, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour kind of deal. And while a lot of those accidents are bad and sometimes they're bad enough to still kill people, that's not a 200 mile an hour car that's shaped like a jet, you know, driving down a track (laughs) and then suddenly has one of those oopsie moments. You know, there are barricades and there are, you know, things set up to help protect people. But I would imagine that thing would be like a missile leaving the track. Oh, for you know, sure. So any kind of spectators and stuff. I feel like this just this has to be really nailed down before I would be willing to, you know, hang out and hang out in the crowd kind of deal. So we were talking about before about these autonomous cars, you know, the Teslas and the ones like that. Now, this is on a, a relatively in check uh, uh, racetrack. What are your thoughts, though, on general populace and using the ones that are only going to, you know, do your 50 and do your in-between driving. What are your thoughts on autonomous vehicles as a whole? Are you excited for it or are you worried about it? Because I feel like there are two schools of thought there. Probably a little column A and a little bit of column B. I, we touched on this a little bit a couple episodes ago. And my overall thought is that I think I think if everybody could switch over overnight kind of deal, it would be a lot better than if we have to do it as kind of a mixed populace kind of deal. You know, if there's some non-driving or some non-autonomous cars and some autonomous cars, I think we'll have a lot more issues because there's still going to be a lot of human error. So even if the software isn't perfect, but everybody had, you know, had the software kind of deal, the cars are going to be either communicating between each other and kind of trying to avoid some of those mistakes or, you know, I think I think as a whole, 
the incidents would be a lot smaller because there is a lot more computer control versus, like I said, the you know you get somebody that comes up to a four way stop sign and it's one of those like well you know you're waiting for somebody to go. Well, when you're in a car, you can you know wave or you can flash your lights or whatever, and somebody else can rationally figure that out. A fully autonomous car isn't, so it's going to follow the rules. And you know, I mean, I'm assuming it's based off of like state law kind of deal. And I know most of those say you know whoever gets there first and he kind of go around in the circle kind of deal. Well, if the car is doing that and expecting something to happen, and then you're in a hurry and you pull out or you think it's not going to go or whatever the case may be, you know, you're asking for trouble there. So. I am all for it. I think that it would be a great way to go. I just question how effective or how how hard or how bumpy the road will be to get there. What do you think? And that's fair overall. Uh, oddly, I must have completely blanked on that because I didn't remember until you hit that one point. I'm like, oh, yes, I do remember talking about this. And I'm kind of in the same boat. I think a lot of ways having the... Um, the computer interaction overall will make things easier. Like you said, with, with intersections, even if there was a sensor at each intersection, you know, like built into lights, you know what I mean? That could actually end up controlling that or as they get and communicate, it passes through. However, you know, whichever one goes first, computers aren't going to get mad at the other one for going first. So if nothing else, people will quickly learn what herringbone merging is <laughs> um, for once. Uh, but at the same time, I think with all of that, I think the there would still need to be some sort of a kill switch or a manual override to be able to take control if needed. With the way things are set up now, that is the case. You know, in, in Tesla's implementation, you're supposed to even have one hand on the wheel kind of deal, at least. Like it's supposed to have, you're supposed to be essentially able to grab the wheel at a moment's notice kind of deal. But ideally, you know, like you said about having sensors and stuff at the light you really, in theory, shouldn't even need that because the cars are looking at the stoplights and they can differentiate, you know, red, green, uh, yellow kind of deal. True. What they can't anticipate is human. And like I said, that's my concern is it's not them obeying the actual laws of the road. In fact, I think they can do that astronomically better than we can. Oh, for sure. You know, you have somebody that's going down the road, reading a newspaper or trying to eat something or spilling coffee or whatever the case may be. Those are the people that are, you know, swerving over and crossing lanes and things like that. You know, the, the autonomous car is not going to do that. So, like I said, I think it's it's a good and a bad thing. I just question the how we get from A to B kind of, do, you know, how do we get from here to there smoothly? Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's really just going to be time, you know, time and lots and lots and lots of safe trials. Exhibit this F1 car. Uh <laughs> <laughs> right but you know it's i mean it's still a cool idea you know it's it's still it is cool to see where the future is going to take us uh, now with that in mind you know when you take a look at some of these autonomous cars it's going to be more than just mechanics you know mechanical type things that we're going to have to deal with trying to fix hell even cars nowadays are full of computers so now you have you know instead of just taking them to the shop you need to talk to your mechanic or you got to talk to your computer guy so what do you do if you're actually good with either or both of those? You know, and I think that's kind of leads into the next topic, the right to repair. Uh, this has been a big topic that I've seen for, what, at least a decade now on Apple's side, they've been fighting that. And uh, quite a few others have, have joined the fight against right to repair. 
so for those who may not know, right to repair basically just says, I have bought this device. I have the skills or knowledge or desire to fix it myself. I should have the right and ability to do that. Some companies are like, nope, that's our stuff. You have to come to one of our authorized repair agents or us directly to fix that issue for you. Personally, I am very much pro right to repair. As someone who likes to dabble in, even if I'm going to mess it up, you know, that's something I, that's, that's a risk I am willing to take. In some cases, it's I just want to toy with the device and see what I can do with it, you know, from a tinkerer aspect. Others, it's, yeah, I've got enough knowledge to get it back working. I guess my question to you is, where do you stand on that particular argument? So again, this one, I kind of ride down the middle a little bit because I, as a former technician who's worked on lots of cars, I can really, really see both sides of the spectrum. So being a car type person, I'm all for getting in there. I'm all for making tweaks. I'm all for doing things. But at the same time, you know, how many times, even like with a computer, how many times have you worked on somebody's computer where they thought they knew what they were doing? They got in there and the whole <laughs> thing is just all blown to bits. It's yep. the same thing with a car, except the problem with that is if you think you know what you're doing, you get in there and you screw something up and then you cause an accident at 80 miles an hour on the freeway. The ramifications for that are much, much worse. I think, you know, if you, if you screw something up on your computer you're really just hurting yourself and maybe your family because they can't use the computer kind of deal. If you, like I said, if you botch something up on your car's computer, you know, best case scenario, maybe your AC runs when it's not supposed to or something like that. But worst case is it stalls, you know, or it catches fire or I have know, no brakes. Right. Well, yeah, the ABS system doesn't go off when it's supposed to. The car guy in me, though, also sees it from the other side of the spectrum of I want to be able to modify my computer. And so like the people that tune their cars or the people that like tweak the ECUs to get more power and stuff out of them, you know, instead of having to hack into them or instead of having to pay loads and loads of money to get tuners to be able to do that sort of stuff, I see where this could be beneficial to stuff like that. Sure. But like I said, the right to repair stuff, like I said, I think is a really touchy way to, or is a really touchy area with some of that because you know, I think some of the argument for right to repair is I should be able to do whatever I want, no matter what. And you just have to deal with it from your side. But from the company's side, if you do something that then causes some sort of a security issue or, you know, creates a hole somewhere that isn't supposed to be there and has adverse effects, one, you shouldn't be required to necessarily support that. And two, you definitely shouldn't be required to warranty it. No, and I and I agree with that too. I think the biggest thing with that is, let's say there was a, a big incident and you've gone and you've done some tweaking and upgraded your engine or your brake line or whatever the case might be. Now an accident has been caused. A, company's not liable because as soon as, uh, and maybe it would be on the, the terms of the insurance agents then to determine, maybe not even necessarily the root cause, but... If you uh, run into an issue where, you know, the brakes have failed and they see, oh, here's some changes you made to the brakes, that's on you. You know what I mean? So perhaps regardless of the, the overall situation, but that's you get to a real fine gray area, even legally for, you know, from an insurance agent standpoint of who's going to pay for this. If somebody cuts out in front of you, you can't stop in time because you mess with, you know, your brakes or your steering. Right. 
where's that happen? Theoretically, the guy that whipped out in front of you and ran a red light. But right. at the same time, you, if left to the, the genuine devices, would you have still had enough time then? And that's something that I feel like there's a whole lot of math and people who would love to do that math to try to figure out. Uh, there's also a word for it, but I cannot for the life of me think of the name of that at the moment. Uh, <laughs> who basically calculate those style risks. Like risk assessment kind of deal. Yeah, not amortization. Um, it'll watch. It'll hit me well after we're done. Recording. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> but, but there's a guy who, uh, and a lot of times it's more so resulting from like risk and death. But I feel like that same kind of math and calculus statistics level could come into play here too. And that could make it real tricky. Yeah. So I'm with you to a point like I'm, I'm all for right to repair, but it also depends what it is. And I think that's where you're kind of leaning on to. Yeah. I think that they're going to have to really define what right to repairs. Like I said, it's different when you're talking about a cell phone. It's different when you're talking about a computer. You know, there's different, there's a lot of other facets of your life where right to repair has a lot less uh, consequence. You know, right. the, the consequence with a car is not only your life, but it's somebody else's. There's very few other devices in my life that if something goes terribly wrong, there's a high probability of somebody dying. Yeah. And I think that's really, I think that's the major, you know, call out on this one is I think that's where they really are going to have to to really split hairs even with some degree here. And, you know, I almost wonder if that's going to be, you know, do we have to kind of put something in place and then we just let lawsuits kind of hash it out until they kind of restructure things and kind of figure out where that is. That's a very dangerous precedent though, if you think about it. Well, but what's the alternative? I mean, it's it's an all or nothing deal otherwise. Yeah. And that's, and that's, like I said, where it it gets to be the very uh, tricky situation trying to figure out. I know the Ver- the Verge article that we were reading, the biggest thing I got from that is even less from repairing themselves, but more so accessing the digital data from the cars. So it still ties back to our original topic of the autonomous and the computers in cars, because with this, it was uh, Massachusetts that has now passed the right to repair, but specifically for car data, which as a car enthusiast, you might be very interested to see. But if that data is only sent to, you know, uh, a server from the manufacturer itself and you never get a chance to see that, there might be tuning because maybe you are part of a tuning shop or things like that, that the ability to at least have those and understand where an issue might be or some tuning needs to happen. This, I think, ends up being a really good thing to see because if nothing else, you can identify problems before they happen. Well, that's what your check engine lights for. And that's what the codes that are in your car and stuff are for already. That's where I think they have to really be careful how they go down this path. Because if that's all you're looking for, if all you're looking for is data, you can go out and buy a $20 scan tool and you can get most of that already. You can get all the codes that are, that are you know coming up in your car and any like semi-decent scan tool, you can plug it in. You can get coolant temperatures, you can get engine temperatures, you can get intake air temperature you can get you know the mass airflow data there, there's a lot of stuff like that that you can get there are a handful of things that the manufacturer scan tool will do that are way deeper into the system but for the most part you as a you know you as a, a regular joe schmo you know you don't need to have the ability per se to go into the scan tool and make your windows go up and down 
you know, but as a technician, if you're sitting in the door panel with a multimeter trying to figure out where you have a short, you don't have another arm to go up to the front to toggle the switch to make it go up and down. You hit a button on the, on the, you know, on the scan tool and it starts to do that for you. And then you can take your readings and figure out what's going on. So I think actually from the data standpoint specifically, I think that actually makes her argument a lot weaker. See, that's where, and this is where I will disagree a little bit. Here's the thing. Uh, I'm a computer guy. I like numbers most times. Still did not like that stat class. Um, But I am not a car guy. So if I could have a way to have that, you know, I even if I were to go out and buy a scan kit, I don't know where to plug it in at. I could try to figure that out. But what they're talking about is going to like an open platform that could send that data to your phone, for instance. And well, yes, I may not need that to to roll up and down the windows if I could see. But that's not true. You're you are right and wrong at the same time. They're not talking about making this an open platform. They're talking about when you it's like having locked bootloaders on your phone. So like the reason you have to jailbreak your phone or at least the reason you used to have to jailbreak your phone is because they would lock down the bootloader, essentially. Think of the ECU on your car as the same way. Those are locked. So you can't just plug in there and make changes. So like the reason that tuners and stuff cost as much as they do is because the people that make the tuning software have to go in and hack the ECUs to be able to get in there and make changes to them. And what you're paying for is the R&D and their time to figure that stuff out originally. So... That's all they're talking about doing is essentially unlocking the the ECU so that you can just plug into it, go in and rewrite it and do whatever it is you want to do. And I think maybe that's how I ended up reading it a little bit differently because I know it was it was mentioning about having until 2022 to install a standard open data platform and being able to control the data and the telemetry that's coming from that. Right. But all that is is letting you get into what's already there. Right. Right. So, and like I said, that's why I think the argument is weak because you can already get to most of that data. So you can read almost anything you want off your car. Like I said, you can plug in a scan tool and you can read the codes and you can see them and you can, you can get a lot of the information. What you can't do is control it or alter it. And that is what would be different here is they're giving people the ability to rewrite the code essentially, or they're giving them the ability to change the, the, the preset functions or the, the preset uh, base values that are in there. So, you know, say your car idles at 750 RPMs right now, you can't, without proper tools, you can't easily change that to something else. If the ECU is unlocked, you can go in there and say, I want you to idle at 2000 RPMs as soon as I start the car. Well, besides blowing through a whole bunch of gas and putting a lot of stress and stuff on your car, you know, like I said, you can't do that without having like a tuner that already is unlocking your computer and doing all the stuff essentially that you're wanting to do otherwise. Like I said, what I go back to my argument with this is not should people be able to get in there. The the problem I have with this is once we open this door, it's going to be a Pandora's box kind of deal because the handful of people that know what they're doing and that are qualified to make those kind of changes correctly are very small versus the people that will just go in there and be like, Oh, I just want to make this different. Or I think this is going to make it better. Overclock my car. Right. And, and, you know, cars are, it, it really is like a fine tuned machine kind of, you know, there's parameters that have to be right. You know, if things are a little bit off, you know, most of the sensors and stuff on your car 
are a, a one volt to a five volt reference. So one volt different, half a volt different can make your car perform in a way different manner than what it's intended to do. Maybe it works out in your favor. Maybe it doesn't. You know, if you set your fuel injectors to run a little bit longer and suddenly your car's running a little bit rich, it might not be a big deal in your driveway, but you go to punch it to get on and merge onto the highway and suddenly the car floods out and shuts off on the on-ramp. You've suddenly become a really big liability and potentially could hurt people. And that's, and that's very true too. So, I mean, that's, I think would in fact be the, the other big question there, you know, and, and I can see what you're saying, you know, it's, I think to me, at least from specifically the cars, I think having easier method to see some of the, that data. Cause like I said, if I go out and buy a scanner, I have no clue where to put it in. I'm driving a Prius. So it's going to be vastly different than if I go and get a Chevy. But then you're the perfect example of why I think this shouldn't happen because, (laughs) and I don't mean it in a rude way, but you have no, you have no qualifications then to even have the ability to do this. Like the reason it's locked is because of people like you ultimately, because you don't know what you're doing. And if for some reason you get a wild hair one day and decide you want to try to tweak something, you're the one that I'm worried about in all honesty, or at least people like you. And that's fair. Like I fully admit, I have no clue what's going on when it comes to cars, <laughs> which is also precisely why I would not actually change anything. You know, it's like I know very many people who won't change the display settings on their computer, let mm-hmm. alone try to overclock it. Sure. So for me, trying to kind of mildly compare the two, although one has a much bigger chance of, I don't know, vastly injuring somebody, I feel like it's the same kind of, you know, present there. If you don't know what you're doing, yes, there's some people who are like, I know what I'm doing and absolutely don't. I've had to fix a few of those computers and I'm sure you have too. Yeah. You know, when it comes to the car, yeah, that's, and, and maybe that's more so where the discussion needs to be. Not just if this one opens up the, the controlling, you're right. There, there's a Pandora's box and where's it going to end? Especially if this ends up having to be placed in on a car manufacturer side. Now you're taking a state law into something that possibly then has national effects. If that may, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if one person gets on board, you would imagine others would start to join that, you know, but if you as a manufacturer have to put it in all your cars now to meet this one standard, well, now everybody's going to have that regardless of what the law ended up being in that particular state. Right. It filters. Yeah. It'll have to filter through. Yeah. So that also ends up being the other big, you know, question that could pop arise uh, from that well or you start getting software more in the tesla type style where you know you're getting specific software updates very specifically to your car you know you can go in after the fact on purchase anymore in a tesla and if you want to add performance you can unlock certain modes and you can get essentially upgrades to your car and all they do is you know push a new updated file like firmware essentially to your car stuff unlocks and off you go I have mixed feelings on that sort of situation as well, but <laughs> you know, cause essentially you, you've already paid for componentry in your car that can do more than what it's doing. And they're just essentially charging you a, a fee to unlock it. It's, it's micro transactions on a car is what it really I was gonna is. Say, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what that comes off as. But I'll tell you though, the, the one part we, we, this article specifically is talking about Massachusetts and how they want to let people and stuff into their cars. But 
the people that I know and have, I, I can see this benefiting are people um, like with John Deere. Have you, have you heard any of that stuff going on um, like with John Deere and some of the farmers and how it was all locked down and a little bit, but not a whole lot. So, and I don't know a ton either. I'm not a farmer, but what I do know is that John Deere essentially locked their stuff down. Like, I mean, you can like barely put air in the tires on those stupid things anymore without like essentially taking it to the dealer. And that's, that's an over an exaggeration. Yeah. But I do believe even, I want to say even with like oil changes and stuff, I think that you could change the oil and stuff yourself, but like the computer wouldn't recognize certain things or it wouldn't like, it would like lock itself down essentially. So maybe you can only go like five miles an hour kind of deal until it was like re-registered that the oil change had been done kind of deal. And I know that's what a lot of the farmers were kind of railing against and why this was such a big push, you know, for unlocking that sort of stuff because they're saying, well, you know, I bought this tractor. If I choose not to take it to the dealer to get an oil change, I shouldn't essentially have degraded or locked down equipment. And those people I can get a hundred percent behind, but for, you know, the standard car, I'm really on the fence with that. I think, and you, you bring about a very wonderful point there with the tractors. I think the whole right to repair is a much bigger conversation. Uh, but again, it, it, it comes down to exactly what you're trying to repair. You know, Apple, I get it. You know, it's like you have your specific set, but I think that, you know, anybody who wants to, you know, take it apart, tinker, cool. If, if you break it, yeah, cool. You're, you're breaking your own warranty there. But no, I agree with you. Uh, from a car side, maybe we need to rethink that a little bit more. Yeah. Or, or like I said, it just needs to be very, it needs to be very well thought through before we enact things. That's all. You know, and, and this, like you said, it kind of plays into the next the next topic we wanted to talk about. There's a New York Times article where both uh, Republicans and Democrats were, you know, pursuing or pushing for laws to make it easier for like cell phones. Uh, they actually call it hospital ventilators, which I kind of feel like that maybe falls into the car category. Like, do I really want somebody tweaking my ventilator? You know, is that really something you overclock? You know, I, I don't know enough about ventilators maybe to speak fully intelligently on that. But maybe, again, it's one of those things where, you know, they buy a ventilator in you know, the hospital buys one kind of deal. And maybe there's certain stuff that's locked down or maybe it will, you know maybe it degrades performance or something until they pay a fee or they do a certain kind of maintenance or something. And I could see that maybe being the case, you know? So I think unless you're really, really adept in your field on the particular item that we're discussing for right to repair, all of this is really, a really not sensitive subject necessarily, but I think it's a really, it's a really biased or a really polarizing conversation because, you know, if you're on the side of, well, I can't do my job because versus, I don't think you should be able to do this because, you know, I think those are, I think those are going to be really the two walls you run into. Now I do think though, and I know it's still kind of branching between the two, but there might actually be a simpler answer. Now here's the thing where, you know, I remember back when I lived up North every once a year, I had to go get a car inspection. You know, sure, uh, we don't have that. If you never take it in for inspection, you're still fine. And I've yeah. lived in other States like that. So perhaps, at least on that side, or maybe the ventilator side or something like that, you have to have an inspection. Cool. Make the changes you want to make, but it still must pass inspection after that. And on your inspection, instead of just being a yearly sticker, it's also a list of changes that have been made. So it actually keeps a running tally of, okay, here is what's signed off on this particular inspection. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I hear you. But when it comes to software on the computer, the average technician working in a shop, one, is not going to be skilled enough to look down through the code and figure out if the changes that were made are going to be dangerous or not. You know, best case scenario, they could take it for a drive and see if it essentially falls into the category of running properly. For software, you could have acceptable ranges that are manufacturer set. But, but even that's then, what that's what it is when it comes from the factory. You know, they're already <laughs> very they're, true. And, and you know, I mean, like your car has variants built into it. You know, like your car isn't going to run exactly this. You know, a ninety degree day, your car is going to run different than a twenty degree day. Yeah. So I mean, there is variance and stuff built in, but like I said, you know, again, we're going back to like I said that that you know the typical sensor is that five volt sensor. You know, you change it by half a volt and a fraction of a volt could be the difference between in and out of spec, you know, so there's not a way. And and it's not like there's 10 systems. It's not like they can scroll down through and say, yep, okay, we got 10 check marks. It's okay to go. <laughs> I mean, you're talking, most cars have miles of wiring in them anymore, you oh, know, yeah. and they have, you know, some of them are, you know, 20, 30 computers and stuff like that. I mean, there's, there's modules and computers for everything anymore, you know, whether it's seatbelts, airbags, heated seats, you know, and, and even stuff like that, like you don't think about something like that being a problem, but if you tweak something, say for your heated seats and, you know, they start to catch fire going down the road or they get so hot that you start burning yourself or whatever, you know, and suddenly you have an accident because of that. Well, again, there's not a good way for somebody that's doing your inspection to be able to verify something like that, you know, other than your inspection taking, you know, six months for them to go through and, and literally go down through every single thing you're, you know, I mean, it's just, there's a, a certain line there where it just becomes unreasonable. So while you're right, I think there's an easier answer. I think the easier answer is, is if you hack into your computer, you're not road legal anymore, which I mean, to some degree is already the case now. Like, you know, the people that are typically modifying their, not, that's not true. The people that legally <laughs> technically are modifying <laughs> their cars, it's it. Most of the upgrades that you do say that they're for like off-road use only because technically they, they, don't comply with, you know, the different regulations. They don't comply with emissions, you know, things like that. So I, I think the long and the short is that's fine. Give people access to get into their stuff. But as soon as they do that, it can't be driven on the road. It's a fair compromise. You know, maybe they even, maybe they even tag that into like the sat- satellite navigation kind of deal. So if it detects that you were on a road, it shuts off. I don't know. Cause then you get that problem with the, uh... You change out your graphics card and your and your desktop too often, and now all of a sudden, my uh, Windows is no longer activated. <laughs> well, and I'm a hundred percent sure we'd run into issues like that. You know, oh, my house is next to the freeway, so it constantly thinks I'm on the freeway and it won't let me start my car. I, I totally acknowledge that there would be things like that happening, but it would have to be something very aggressive like that, right? Because, like I said, the the alternative is is not chaos yeah the the alternative is just not even is not even a reasonable request to some degree now you know getting back to our new york times article you know like i said they talk about a lot of the different stuff you know like with your smartphone and stuff being in the apple camp i don't even really care about it in that respect the only right to repair part that i necessarily would care about is for you know batteries screen replacements things like that and they can already kind of do that the only place that this is going to majorly benefit, well, you can go to like those iFixit places and stuff like that. They can do it. It's just very expensive and it's hard for them to get parts. That yeah. is where I think the right to repair laws would be beneficial. 
And that's kind of what they were talking about in this too. Yeah. If they're going to force Apple to be able to make their parts available, that third party places can get stuff done. Great. That's fine. Would I personally do it? Absolutely not. Because Apple has designed their system to be extremely closed and extremely locked down and things like that. You know, and, and I look at it very much like a balloon, you know, when everything is doing what it's supposed to do, the balloon holds air and it does what it's, you know, it's, it has a nice shape. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. If I get in there and start making changes or I unlock it, or I start putting in rogue apps and things like that, I'm poking holes in that balloon and suddenly all the air is starting to come out and there's a lot of places for other things to get in. I was an Android user for years and I used to put ROMs on my phone. I used to jailbreak them all the time. You know, I would do a lot of that stuff, but looking back at it, I created massive holes in my system a lot. And I'm hundred percent sure that there was more than one occasion where I had rogue apps and bad malware. You know, I had different things happen because I chose to go through and do that. So in this day and age, are people going to actually accept the responsibility for that? Or are they going to then get all sorts of, you know, upset and then want to complain to the companies and be like, well, this is your product. You know, it's your problem, even though I broke it. Well, and that's the thing too. Thankfully, it, even in cases like that, you can usually tell that, oh, wait, you've gone in and done this. So here's the proof that, sorry, you know, but I'm with you on that too, to to some extent. You know, I take a look at when I bought my laptop. Now I had gotten a a gaming laptop on purpose. It's kind of been my, my go-to for the last three plus years. But when I got it, one of the things that had kind of turned me off to this particular one, in spite of how good it was, is that in the actual warranty pages itself, if I were to, to pop it open to upgrade the RAM, the hard drive, the battery, if I pulled that back cover off at all, no longer warrantied. I'm sorry. I'm a computer guy and I've been in tech for the last eight years. At work, I replace batteries and RAM and stuff in laptops all the time. But you're going to tell me, because I'm not one of your service techs, that that would have broken the warranty? And I think that that is where I start to come back a little bit more on, on, you know, I said your side of the right to repair, I guess, you know, the the plus side of that. I think if companies are uber afraid of that, then they need to build the products in a repairable way. You know, old school smartphones, you could literally slide the back off, slide a new battery and slide it back together and you were done. You were fine. You didn't hear about a whole lot of people destroying their phones, trying to put batteries in it. You know, when they started destroying their phones and the screens got glued on and when the backs got glued on and when people had to take spudgers to them and heat guns and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I realized that the manufacturers did that to some degree for money. You know, I readily acknowledge that. But by the same token, some of that, you know, has helped smartphone advancement. You know, it does allow them to make things smaller sometimes or it does allow them sometimes the the non-upgradability aspect of it or the non-easily repairability of it, maybe it's a better way to say it, will help make a better product at the cost of making it easier to upgrade. But then make the whole screen, you know, maybe you can't take the layers of the screen apart to replace them one by one. That's fine. But then make the screen in a way enough as a a whole unit that I can pop the screen out, you know, or I can make it slightly more repairable. I'm not asking for it to be a, a Lego phone where one piece pops off one, you know, you know what I mean? We like, were I'm trying not, that a while back. They were, and it failed. It did. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not asking for that, but by the same means, there are certainly, there are certainly things that they're doing that intentionally make it harder than it needs to be. And yes. that's where I think 
you know, the right to repair stuff I think is beneficial. And maybe it's just, and, and I openly admit this is all speculation on my point, just from at the time when they switched from having user replaceable batteries to non-user replaceable batteries, I was selling phones at that time. And in my opinion, I can't hashtag that enough. Uh, my personal opinion. Um, it also seemed like part of that, once they moved to a, now it's no longer user replaceable, which like you said, is then when people started breaking their phones, trying to replace the parts anyway, then the manufacturer turned on like, see, this is why we told you you shouldn't be able to, to change your stuff. Hold up. You actively made it harder. Right. And they wanted to blame people for continuing to try to do what they've been able to do. Right. And I think you need to not overlook planned obsolescence to some degree, too. Yeah. You know. Oh, for sure. I will give Apple some credit in that regard of I think that their planned obsolescence is less about the phone just breaking or not working altogether as you're just motivated to want to upgrade to the newest, latest and greatest one, because a lot of times they change the operating system to where it's going to complement the newest, latest and greatest hardware which in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, that's kind of a duh almost, you know, of course sure. you want your newest stuff to run the best. And and I think they do, especially in latter years, I think they do a whole lot better on maintaining past hardware. I mean, their, their newest OSs and stuff like that, they go back way farther. You know, I mean, they go back generations of phones. And while you may not get all necessarily some of the whiz bang features just because it physically can't do it, you know, at least they are getting updates, you know, you're still getting security updates. The people that I think are really in the spotlight for this is Android. Yeah. And and they've gotten a little better in the last couple of years, but even as a whole, they are epically bad at like ongoing support. And that's, I mean, that's not entirely false there either. I think the other thing with that is I take a look at just a couple of years ago when they stopped putting uh, like SD card slots and mm-hmm. I get it. That's they're bigger. They take up room in there versus soldering the flash memory right onto the board. No, that is a hundred percent because they want you to buy more storage. Yep, and and cloud storage. The, but look how much. Well, not even just that. Let's just say you've got a thirty-two, a sixty-four, and a one twenty-eight gigabyte options for the phone here that you're looking at. But notice the price differences. At least back when you had uh, you know good old SD card slots. You might pay $20 more for that double in, in space, and now you're paying $300 more for a bigger phone. And numbers, I, I, I'm sure it wasn't 300 for the difference there, but it was definitely much more than it would have been back in the day. Just pop a new card in. I mean, Apple's is $100 a tier. So, I mean, you're so, not wildly that's off not base. That. Yeah, and, and I think in Apple's case especially, that is very much a money grab. And then Android followed suit. Right. The other thing, though, is that I think there's also a security aspect to that. You know, anytime you can introduce something essentially to the phone, it, it again, it just goes back to the balloon thing. You know, it's just one it's one other place you're essentially popping a hole in it. While that is probably not a very big hole and it's not necessarily a super dangerous hole. I think that is especially where they're leaning on. I think that's their argument for that is that it's it's an unsafe practice kind of deal. But shouldn't it be my uh, choice to be able to take that risk? Yes. As the end user? But when but when your company is marketing security, as Apple does, I mean, that essentially is a feature anymore. And they outright will say that as such. You know, I mean, you can look at any of their documentation on their website. 
they're selling security as a feature. And, and personally I'm okay with that. Like I'm all in for that. That's actually one of the reasons I stick with Apple over a lot of the other companies is because I'm getting to me additional security and additional refinement, you know, like in the app store and, you know, additional app review, things like that. I feel as though I'm getting a better quality product and a safer product because they've chosen to lock some of that down, which is why I don't have a problem with the right to repair as a whole. If people want to go and screw their stuff up, that's fine. You know, if they want to have the option to do it, whatever, do it. But I personally would not do it myself. And that's fair. And see, you're talking about security, though. Just wait until we get those Linux phones. Yeah, I I think it technically that might be what iOS kind of. I don't remember. I think that's one of the kernels they use, but I'm not sure. Either way, well, and you know, but at least with Linux, it would be an open OS, though. You know, so you yeah. still have like an open source. So you're still getting some of the security aspects because of it being open source and, uh, you know, everybody can contribute kind of deal. And the Linux community is, is a way more techie group, you know, than your general population. So while, you know, fine, bring on the Linux phones, grandma and grandpa aren't buying them. <laughs> nope. I would pick up one just to, if for no other reason, just to check it out. Well, sure, for fun or as like a dev kit kind of deal. Yeah, totally. I can understand that. Could be a lot of fun, actually. But I don't foresee that being mainstream by any means. Next thing you know, Blackbird is going to make a comeback. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then just to round out the show here real quick, we did want to thank our friends over at 10G Tech. We had reached out to them actually to see uh, if they would be willing to, not necessarily sponsor, uh, but if they would be willing to uh, provide us with some equipment that we could then in return possibly kind of review and just kind of go over. And they were they were absolutely willing to do that. They've been great to work with so far. What we had asked for was actually two SFP plus adapters. We had wanted to move our system from a one gig network to a 10 gig network. Um, and they very graciously, you know, provided those two SFP plus adapters. Um, and all they asked for in return was just that we, you know, let everybody know what we think about them. So what I can tell you um, is that I installed those. And the ones that I took out were Ubiquity. They had gotten those originally when I had gotten the Switch and uh, my UDM Pro. I put those in and they were instantly picked up by the system. Did not have to do any reconfiguration just to get initial connectivity. They, like I said, grabbed onto each other. They connected right away. Uh, the only adjustments I did have to make was in the link speed. I had to switch it from one gigabit to 10 gigabit. Uh, but as soon as I did that, everything reprovisioned and they worked great. I did see a couple of reviews that people complained that they run hot. Um, I will say that has not been my uh, experience personally. Uh, these actually seem to run a few degrees cooler for me than what the Ubiquity ones do. So I have no complaints there. Uh, they've been rock solid ever since, and they are fast, fast, fast. So if you are looking for any sort of uh, 10 gig networking, be it cables, adapters, anything like that, make sure you check out our friends at 10G Tech. And we would like to thank them very much for you know providing that equipment. You can find 10G Tech products at 10GTEK.com, or you can also find them on Amazon. Uh, make sure you check them out today, guys, if you need any sort of equipment. Be sure to like and subscribe. Never miss an episode. 
And if you like what we're about, be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Well, that's going to wrap up our show for today. Be sure to follow us at Dual Rambling on Twitter, or for show notes, check out our website, anchor.fm slash dual rambling. From all of us here at Dual Rambling, I'm Jason. And I'm Steve. And as always, ramble on. <laughs>